I love hearing stories of being saved. Thanks, Ms. Fish. It's timely in, in that today's even a, a holiday, a Jewish holiday, that celebra- uh, celebrates the story of Esther. Which is really this story again. God's saving. God's saving people. So I celebrate this story, and I celebrate all of our stories, because we all need a Savior. From one degree to, the, to another, we, we all need, we deeply need a Savior. Our sermon focus for the next six weeks is going to be on the Savior, specifically on the reality that he had to suffer. And why did he have to suffer? And were there any predictions, maybe, in the Old Testament that talked of him suffering? And I'm excited about that. I'm excited about today because we're going to be in the Psalms. And whenever we're talking about suffering, I go to the Psalms in all, in all my suffering because it's real feelings from a real person. And Jesus didn't just suffer psychological anguish. He physically suffered. Does God come close to our pain? Is it lost on him if we suffer? No. Today we're going to be talking about the feeling of separation in a way, of being rejected. A feeling that I think a lot of us have a fear of, or at least some scars from, that go as deep as it goes in our soul and in our heart. Today we're going to be in Psalm 118, and all I want to do is introduce you to the Psalms. We haven't been there in a while. And then to talk to you about maybe what Jesus thinks about this psalm. So we're just going to inhale it together and take huge bites. And I'll leave you to personally study it and memorize it on your own later. So what's a psalm? Let's talk about this for a few minutes. What's a psalm? A psalm is, is a poem. It's a song. It's poetry. I love this because it's, because poetry was invented to be felt. It's a, it's inv- it was made so that our feelings could somehow, some way, be articulated. What's inside that we can't really express is expressed through art and through poems. And I get great joy out of the fact that God cares enough about my feelings and my emotion. That he's willing to give up such a large portion of his book to stewarding that and to speaking health into it. Because what a psalm does is it doesn't just, it doesn't just articulate a feeling and leave it there in a profound way. It does that and then it moves that feeling. It, 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 it reflects it up towards God every time. Psalm 42, I am like, so exhausted, so thirsty. I'm like a deer that has been running through the woods and needs some water. As the deer pants for living water, my soul, my soul pants for you. Every feeling, every feeling that we can feel, every emotion that we've experienced can be be seen in the psalm. Joy, Happiness, gratefulness, gladness are all expressed in the psalm. Depression, discouragement. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? 
Hope in God, for one day you will sing of him again. Fear, why are you afraid, oh my soul? Do you not know God has counted your tossings and bottles up your tears? We're missing out a great deal of relationship with God on an emotional feelings level if we're skipping the psalm. I don't know how a day goes by where I'm not in the Psalms. And I don't say that to, to say anything other than God really shepherds me here. So this is the Psalm. And I want to get practical right off the bat with you just because I've seen a lot of people intimidated by the Psalm. And I'm okay with being overwhelmed, but not as much with being intimidating. I heard some people think that I'm intimidating. I would agree that I'm overwhelming, but I'd hate to be uh, going around intimidating people, okay? I, okay, so what I do with the psalm, one thing that works for me, take it or leave it. But when I'm cold, mentally, I don't know where to go in here, early in the morning, coffee's still brewing, what am I doing? I didn't mean to rhyme right there. I go... To my age in the psalm, to whatever number is my age. That way, every year, all throughout the year, I've got one thing that I know for sure I can continue to go to. And let me tell you, I've had birthdays where I've woken up and said, oh no. Because I've just spent 365 days basking in Psalm 23. Psalm 24, and really it's a bittersweet because as soon as you say goodbye to Psalm 23, you get Psalm 24. Psalm 24, you get Psalm 25. And if you're really ambitious and you're scared that you're going to miss out on the last ones halfway through the year, why not go double your age and start going to the 50s, 60s, 70s, and maybe we'll make it all the way to the end. I don't know. That's practical. Uh, If... If you're overwhelmed still by just the sheer length of the psalm, say maybe your only comprehension of the psalm is that the Gideon's Bible thinks it's so long it will completely replace the Old Testament, or maybe Psalm 119 is just so long you never want to read it all the way through, here's a couple of hooks to comprehend this book, and here's what I do. There's always been sort of a mental parallel between the Psalms and the Torah. Have you ever noticed that after Psalm 41, it says, amen, amen, and then there's, this is book two. Okay, what's a, what is that all about? After Psalm 72, there's, there's a, amen, amen, and a book three, and 89, and 106, there's books here in the Psalms. There are five books of the Psalms. It's been a long-standing tradition, at least for the sages of old, when knights were bold, that there is a somehow poetic commentary going on with each book of the Torah. So if you're looking for somewhere in the Bible to pepper in the Psalms, just imagine if you have the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and then the first book of the Psalms, and you start to read them at the same time, and you see, okay, Psalm 1, we've got a man, we've got the law, we've got 
a tree and the counsel of the wicked. <laughs> and then you read about the man in the beginning of the law by a tree and getting counseled by the wicked. Maybe this would help that. I don't know. But David wrote most of these psalms, and he's saying things like meditate on the law day and night. So I can only assume that at least there's some connection to the man who's, who's praying through these psalms, writing are praying through the Torah, writing psalms, writing songs, that maybe there's something that would help that. Imagine, you get to my favorite conversation between Abraham and the Lord, when, you probably could guess, uh, God takes Abraham out of his tent and says, Abraham, look to the stars, count them if you're able to count them, so shall your offspring be. And then you were to read uh, Psalm 8. Oh God, my God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. (laughs) When I look to the stars and I see the work of your hand, I wonder what is man that you are mindful of him. Or you look to Psalm 19 and just say, "The, the stars of the heavens are proclaiming the glories of God. Maybe there's some poetic connection and commentary going on that you can, that you can work through on your own. And it happens book after book. The third book of the Bible is Numbers, and it's all about the wilderness of the Israel, Israelites. And what's the first psalm of the third book of Psalms? Psalm 90, which is Moses. It's, it's Moses' psalm. <laughs> the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, recounting all that God has done for his people. And then we get to the fifth book of Psalms, and it is nonstop, wall-to-wall, praising God for who he is and for what he's done. Psalms aren't so scary. Even inside of those five books that file that cabinet drawer away, you've got more categories of things to think about. There are the songs of ascent, for example. There are psalms compiled for liturgical purposes. Where the songs of ascent, one, Psalm 120 to 134, was recited by the priests as they were preparing to worship. So maybe 15 steps outside of the door here some morning, you'll want to just recite each psalm and take a step and see what happens when you get in. I don't know. Today, we are in the fifth book of the Psalms, and we are also in a smaller liturgical chunk also. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 is considered the Egyptian Hallel. Hallel just meaning praise. And it is thought that these psalms would be a great companion to anyone studying the Exodus. Think of all that we've done over the last six to seven months and then read these psalms and see maybe uh, what emotionally happens inside of your heart. It's kind of cool. Personally, I think it's amazing that Psalm 118 in and of itself is really a a big part of the Passover Seder. At the end of dinner, so say at the end of what Rod was talking about last week of the communion time where Jesus had dinner with the disciples for Passover. At the end of dinner, they would sing Psalm 118 as, the, as a closing. So when you read in Matthew 26 that Jesus passed the bread and passed the cup and then they rose, sang a hymn, and went to Gethsemane. You can, you can bet that the psalm that they sung was the Psalm 118. That God prepared 
hundreds of years for the hearts and the emotions of his people to be stewarded to even the day that he came. So read with me a few verses out of Psalm 118, starting at verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Pray with me. Save us, O Lord. Hosanna. Give us the courage that you gave your daughter, Esther. We're celebrating her, her bravery today in a lot of ways. She knew a God who saves when she said, Tell the people to fast, for I will go into the king in three days' time, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Teach us about you, God, in a way that she knew you, with courage to say that I know a God who saves. Like the Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, who said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Our God is able to save us from the fire, but if not... We will never bow down to you. Teach us about that God who is able to you who are able to save us, save us from the fire. And give us the courage to be able to say, but if not. We'll never bow down. Thank you for this psalm. Teach us about you this morning. Amen. This psalm is very well written. It's become a really liturgical and idiosyncratic psalm that uh, has sayings in it that have become, in and of themselves, even sayings to people. Like, we have sayings like, the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. We have sayings that, that, that we share with each other. Hosanna! is one of the sayings that have come from this psalm. It's the only time in the Hebrew Bible that that word is found. This is on the mind of people at Passover. You could probably read that and, and put that together in when Jesus comes in the, from the Mount of Olives and they are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. The Hillel Psalms is on their mind. But the bottom line for Psalm 118 is we have a God that saves people. This psalm is meant for each other to speak to each other on their way to the... Three pilgrimage festivals. They would sing these psalms to each other. We have a God who saves people. Don't forget that. He saves. I'm tired of that word being stolen from this generation, whereas a generation ago, that was the most important word you could say, where now it's become hollow and fickle. And, and do I really want to be saved? Is there really a, a point in saying, I'm saved? Am I? I want, my heart is for you to be so sure of a God that saves people that there's no question. I'm saved. I need that. Because life is not easy. And the psalmist knows that. These are real 
words written by a real person who has real problems. He needs a real God that will, that will reach out when we're in distress. Like in verse 5 when he says, In my distress I called out to the Lord. I need to know that I have somebody out there that I can scream to in my mess and in my distress. Verse 7 There are people who hate him, he says. In verse 10, I feel alone and all surrounded by my enemies. Verse 12, there are bees. Every, they're like swarming around me like bees. I feel like I'm in the Hunger Games right now. Verse 13, I've been pushed so hard. I'm to the point of falling. I need a person that will address my distress Because my heart sometimes is so heavy. It's been pushed to the point of falling. Do you know distress? Do you know that that, that this country is totally in distress? The city, customers in our businesses, people at the store next to us, drivers are in distress. Look at these potholes on the road. Marriages are in distress. Maybe you're saying right now, it just hasn't been good in a really long time. I don't know how to love my wife anymore. I don't know how to love my husband anymore. She asked for three weeks and now it's three months. Is it ever going to be good again? My heart's heavy with distress. Families are in distress. Maybe you're a parent of a child and you feel like it right now. My kid hates me. You, you wouldn't believe some of the words they say when they're fighting. And to be honest, maybe you think, graduation's just three months away, two and a half months away, and I'm counting the days till my kids leave and I hate that about myself. Or maybe you're like me, who when I was 17 thought it was the greatest idea to just move out of my parents' house and go explore the world, which lasted about 15 minutes, (laughs) till I started realizing this insatiable pain of loneliness that takes a long time to rebuild and a long time to find, but when you're in a city like this, You see people all over the place, and every time you see someone, it just stings a little bit who's holding hands with someone else, or if you see friends that are just so deep and close, and or if you see someone in life who's a little bit farther down the road than you, sometimes that feeling just doesn't let you go. I'll never forget the movie Julie and Julia when I watched it, and I saw Meryl Streep as Julia Child walking down the streets of Paris with her husband, and you see just in a glimpse this stroller go by with a mother and Julia just locks up and her face just, you see, it's like, it's like she just got stung. Every time that happens to us in these battles in life, which pretty much just only come out on the way to church in the mornings, right? Uh, These battles that come out, they sting us just a little bit more. And not one sting is going to kill you, but sting after sting after sting, wave of distress after wave of distress. 
This is the feeling of real life drowning so heavy on your chest that you can't breathe anymore. Who are we going to call to? The Ghostbusters aren't real. Who are you going to call when you breach the water and you go to grasp for air, but all you want to say is, save me. I need a rock. There's so much in the world offering me to build on them that is not solid. It's too, it's sinking sand. I need a rock to build on. I need a stone. What if I told you that the God of the Bible is a rock? He claims to be a rock. He will be a rock for you to build on, to trust, to be safe under. He says it. Remember, Isaiah 44, verse 8. Don't be afraid. Don't tremble. For I, the Lord, your God, am God. And I know no other rock. I know no other rock but I. Well, isn't it a rock that, that brought water to the the dehydrated people in the wilderness of the Israelites? Wasn't it a rock that God wrote on his law, the Ten Commandments? Wasn't it a rock that hid Moses so that he would live on Mount Sinai for that moment? Wasn't it a rock that sunk into the head of the Philistine giant? God's a rock. Samuel and 1 Samuel chapter 7, when he was the judge still, was praying like crazy for his people as the Philistines are coming in to attack them. Nobody's going to live through this thing. And Samuel just continues to pray, and guess what happens? A thundering noise (laughs) comes from heaven, and God completely scares the Philistines just enough time for the Israelites to take him out. And what's Samuel do? He sets up a rock and says, Ebenezer. The Lord is my stone of help. And not to mention, too many psalms to count. That David thinks the same thing. God, you are my God. You are my rock and my refuge. Blessed be the God of my salvation. The rock who's exalted. You know that. You know that God is a rock for you. For me. He's always been that. You can rely on him, and you can build your life on him. Problem is, even people that know this sometimes choose to not build on the, on the rock. See, that's really the first part of Psalm 118.22 here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who are the builders? How do they reject him? How is he the cornerstone? Who's the cornerstone? Well, this has been a question of debate and consideration for many years. There was, there's a school of thought that believes the stone the builders rejected was King David, as he was rejected for much of his life and then became the king of Israel and Judah. Or, perhaps, it's Israel. The stone the builders rejected. Everybody knows Israel's rejected. I, I don't know how they managed to think that they, they become the cornerstone, but I guess you could get there at some point in your life, which I think they do at the time of Jesus believe that they become the cornerstone of the world. Tell you what, 
Psalm 118 echoes all over Jesus' life. But never more clear than that parable we read earlier in the service. Matthew 21. Turn there if you like. But I just want to revisit that parable where Jesus talks about a man with a vineyard. And that the tenants of the vineyard rejected everyone sent to the vineyard. My first question in this in this parable of Jesus, and maybe you're thinking the same thing, how in the world, verse 45, did the chief priests and the Pharisees perceive that, they were, that he was speaking of them? The whole point of Jesus speaking in parables was so that they didn't understand. Remember back when he was speaking plainly? The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Remember. And then he's casting out demons and doing miracles. And these guys say, you're doing it by the source of the devil. You're doing it through the devil. And Jesus is, it's almost like at that point, he's the, this conversation's over. And he completely shuts them out and says, now, from now on, I'm going to speak in parables so that, you, so that you who have eyes to see won't see. And you have ears, you won't hear. And then we get to Matthew 21 and they instantaneously perceive that he was speaking of them. <laughs> well, that, that's got to be on purpose. That's my point, what I'm trying to say. That's got to be on purpose. Well, how do they come to that conclusion There's a couple of reasons. One being that when Jesus set up this parable, it's almost exactly like an Old Testament encounter with the Lord. Remember the vineyard of Isaiah chapter 5. We've been here many times before. You think that it's a stretch. Remember what Jesus said about the vineyard. A guy plants a vineyard. He builds a wall around it. He makes a wine press. And he builds a tower. Isaiah 5.1. Let me sing a song for my beloved concerning the vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He cut it, cleared stones, planted it with choice vine, built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed a wine press. Okay, this is very close to what Jesus was saying. You'd think that they would be able to put that together in their own mind. Kind of like if I was to say, I'm going to tell you guys a story about a church. It's called Gosh Roads Bible Church. And its pastor is Rob Van Schmalkema. And then I proceed to tell you a story. Wouldn't you think maybe I could perceive that he was talking about us? <laughs> okay, uh, so... One of the reasons why they think of that is that. But who cares is the big question. Why does this matter to them? Why do they seek now to kill him or to arrest him? Well, Jesus draws that connection that they are, that they are like the vineyard, but it doesn't end well in Isaiah chapter 5. See, the planter of the vineyard plants it, He says, Israel, you are my vineyard. And then I looked for fruit, but there was no fruit in you. Jesus says, this is you. We got problems. (laughs) To the religious people who are supposed to know how to have a fruitful life, Jesus says to them, even plainly, therefore, 
The kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to someone who will bear fruit. All your religion, all of your effort has been built on something other than the stone of God. All of your righteousness has been built in your selfish, self-centered worldview. And it's all fruitless, and you're just a barren group of people. This is a devastating reality to be told to. Especially if you're a religious leader who knows what the stone is capable of. Remember the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. When he saw all of this built by human hands, the the head of gold, the body of silver, the bronze legs and iron and clay feet. And then a stone came out from the mountain, not hewn by humans' hands, and destroyed everything that was built before. Daniel 2, verse 44. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This is Daniel's interpretation of the dream. It will crush all of those kingdoms and will bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the stone in the vision. Or to just quote Jesus' synthetic, Jesus' commentary on that. Everyone who falls on the stone will be crushed into pieces. And everyone who the stone falls on will be broken. So the Pharisees receive that they're the ones who are fruitless and barren and have been building on, on sand. But who's the stone? Is it Israel? Is it true Israel? Is it David? In a way... Jesus connects the stone to someone in his parable at least. Is it the servant or is it the son? Well, the word for son in Aramaic and Hebrew is only one letter different than the word for stone. A lot of the scriptures are built on wordplay. But if that doesn't connect it enough for you, remember what Peter said in front of the Sanhedrin and Acts 4, verse 11. (laughs) There was any doubt. This Jesus is the stone that the builders have rejected (laughs) and has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. Jesus is the stone. Is he the stone for you? That's the question. What are you building on? What have we been building on? For he was rejected by some very religious people who were supposed to be the experts on spiritual architecture. They were supposed to know the stone when they saw him. But mark my words, if you build your life on something other than Jesus, the cornerstone, he could be right in front of you and you'd miss him. Instead of of setting up the stone, they spit on him. Instead of crowning him with a crown of gold, they crowned him with a crown of thorns. They put shame on him. They beat him. They hung him on a tree and made him die the death of a felon. The cornerstone. And in all of this, 
Jesus, he, he suffered the punishment that we were supposed to suffer and experienced our deepest fear. The stone was rejected. The stone was rejected. We were all supposed to be crushed by that stone, not hewn by human hands. We were all supposed to be crushed, but he suffered being crushed so that I would not have to. And he suffered being separated so that I would not have to. Why do you think capital punishment and excommunication from a family are the hardest things to go through and are the biggest deal to us? Because exile and death have been the top of the list of punishment ever since the Garden of Eden. This goes very deep. But in order to bring us back to the garden, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He, he has become the cornerstone, though. He's not just left to be rejected. He has become the cornerstone for us. Back to Psalm 118, he became the cornerstone, but he did all of this on purpose. That's important to me. Verse 23, this was the Lord's doing. Do you know the rejection of the stone was the Lord's doing? Do you know how much that God loves you to be able to say, I want to do that for them. I'm going to do that. I'm going to suffer rejection. I'm going to suffer being crushed for you. This is the Lord's doing. And you know what? It is marvelous in my eyes. Because of Jesus, I now can receive everything in Psalm 118. We can sing Psalm 118 over each other. We can say it to each other. We can preach it to the world that we have a God who will save you. It's a new day. Verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. You ever rejoice? You ever rejoice about the fact that he did this? celebrate that. That's what this holiday today is all about. It's the most celebratory holiday in the Jewish calendar because they want to dance and scream, he saves us. He saves us. I take this psalm now and I sing it over myself and read it over my family because it's true for me because of Jesus. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. This psalm is ours. When in my distress, in my distress and mess, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me, and he brought me to a safe place. He set me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. The Lord is with me because of Jesus. He is my helper. The Lord is on my side. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Because of the stone, I now have a refuge. 
It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The Lord has become my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Because Pharaoh's hand used to be lifted high and used to hold me in slavery, but the Lord's right hand is lifted higher and has done mighty things in my life and set me free forever. The Lord saves. He will rescue you from all of your slavery, just like he rescued the people sung of in the Egyptian Hillel. Lastly, verse 25 and 26, to me, really make it or break it. Because to experience the benefit of being saved, you got to ask for it. Save me. You ever just said that? I'm not afraid to say that. It's not just a day in my past, as though it, but it was a day in my past. It is a day in every, it is a moment in every day for me. Save us, O oh Lord. Hosanna, save us. Save me. Are you like that? Do you save me? Reads verse 25 and 26 back to back as they were meant to be read. I don't know about you, but I just like exclamation points in Bible verses. But this says, save us, O Lord. And then verse 26, blessed is he who comes. Almost as if, as soon as they thought to say it, save me, he appeared. That's the way God is. As soon as you breach the water and ask for air, there's a hand right there that you can grab to. Save me. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's the prayer of the saints every day of our lives. Save my marriage. Save me. Can you save my marriage? Are you that hero of Psalm 118? Save me. Can you save my neighbors? Can you save my friends? Can you save, save me, save my children? Pray this prayer. Not, he will save your soul from eternal punishment and he will save you today. Save us from our addictions, our habits, all the time that we waste on social media. Save me from that addiction. Save me. Save me from addictions of greed. Save me from addictions of lust. Save me from the addiction to idealistic lifestyles, from the pride of life, from the passion of the eyes. Save my heart. Keep it pure. Save me. Never prayed that. Today might be the day that you pray to the Lord, save me. And his answer is always yes. And as you pray that, you'll begin to rebuild your life on the cornerstone of a Savior who will save you. So pray it even now with me, will you? Hosanna, save us, O Lord, save us. If we prayed it a thousand times or one time, 
give us the assurance that a rock can give us, that we are indeed saved. That we can go out then and communicate that to our neighbors and friends, that you are a God who rescues, you are a God who saves. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when you saved Daniel from the lion's den, when you saved friends from the fire, saved from, from the Egyptians, that's what you're like.